0: Good morning, Journey. Uh, but before we dive into the message this morning, I'd like to, for us to uh, just pause and Pray for Vacation Bible School that begins this evening. Uh, There has been just an incredible team of volunteers working behind the scenes leading up to tonight. Um, And then another incredible team of volunteers who are going to walk with your children throughout this week. And we just want want to bathe this whole week in prayer that uh, we can represent Jesus well uh, to the children that are taking part. So let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for this opportunity that we have here at Journey to uh, offer this Vacation Bible School to the children of our community. Lord, as it kicks off tonight, we just pray for all the volunteers. Uh, Give them an extra measure of patience and, and grace and endurance as we go through a full week of ministry. And we pray for the children that will be a part of it as well that they can uh, just experience uh, you, Lord, in a new way, that they can walk away with an understanding of who you are and what it looks like to follow you. So, Lord, we pray all this in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. You know, back in 1886, Robert Louis Stevenson, the author, wrote a best-selling book called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, in the story, Dr. Jekyll uh, is this fine, upstanding citizen. He's a doctor, but he's frustrated with uh, what's going on inside of him. You know, he sees that in his own life there's a good part and a bad part. So, and he realizes that he's a mix, this compound of both good and bad. And that's really uh, frustrating him. So he, he decides that, you know, as a doctor, as a chemist, uh, he develops this potion that separates out the two parts of him. So during the day, it's the good part. That's the, the physician, the Dr. Jekyll. And at night, it's the bad part, Mr. Hyde. And Stevenson used that name as a play on words, uh, implying hidden or hideous. And the two exist uh, alone, completely separate, neither restraining or impacting the other when the story begins. But the problem that Dr. Jekyll finds is that the evil of Mr. Hyde is far greater than he imagined. And he realized that every thought of Mr. Hyde centered on himself himself. He was spiteful, he was angry, he was vengeful, and he eventually goes on to murder people. And Jekyll writes that, that I was tenfold more wicked than I ever thought. And I discovered that through this process that all men have two sides, good and evil, and you cannot separate them from each other. Well, does that story resonate with you? I mean, we, we can feel like that at times. I think this, this compound, this mix of completely opposite people, opposite desires, opposite intentions. Part of us wants to do the, the right thing, the good thing, but another part of us sometimes pushes against that, pushes back and that doesn't want to be good at all. And both are right there in our lives, kind of ebbing and flowing back and forth in our inner beings. And do you ever wonder, well, if Jesus is really living inside of me, if I have the Holy Spirit as as the Bible promises us, why do I still struggle with some of these old sins, with some of these old temptations? Why is that there? You know, I've been there. I've asked those questions. I've had those struggles. Well, that's what our passage from Romans chapter 7 today is all about. As the Apostle Paul unfolds this chapter, we're going to see the struggle side of it, but also the victory side as well. You know, we've been going through this series of sermons over this summer through through the book of Romans as we explore what it looks like to live under God's grace. And today as we come to chapter 7, it's honestly one of the more confusing chapters but at the same time, hopefully we'll, we're going to see that it's one of the more encouraging as well as we get to the end of it. But I think we can kind of lay out it here at the beginning that our struggle with sin is real. No matter where you are at in your spiritual life, our struggle is real. Well, in this chapter, the Apostle Paul describes, first of all, a battle, a battle that we can't win and then he begins to take us to a battle that we can't lose and he opens up this chapter with this analogy this illustration of marriage and it at first it kind of seems really random that it doesn't really fit in but as we get to the end of the chapter we're going to see it's a beautiful brilliant illustration that Paul uses and he uses that illustration of marriage to help make that transition for us from a battle that we can't win to one that we can't lose. So we're going to open up with those verses about marriage simply because they're at the beginning of the chapter. But, but we'll come back to them at the end of the message today. So beginning in verse 1 of Romans 7, it says, uh, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So Paul's basically saying in our pre-Christ days, in our BC days, we were married to the law. And now, before you dismiss that thinking, I'm not Jewish, I don't follow the religious law of a Hebrew, um, in Romans, the law kind of refers to whatever standard apart from Christ that we think proves our worth or that we uphold to have some degree of acceptance with other people and even with God. Now, we all have or have had something like that in our lives, something that fills that slot. It's how we, you know, a lot of us establish our identity through that. It's how we establish our worth. It's how, you know, it it could have been religious law. For Paul, it was. But it's anything that says, God, I'm good enough you know that this is going to you know get me into heaven or this is going to give me the gold star when it matters now it, it could even be something like you know I'm a good student I get good grades or I have enough talent or I'm a good mother I'm a successful business person whatever it's the center of your life paul says you were married to that And for the Apostle Paul, it was the religious law. But then he says, when you become a follower of Jesus, you died to that way of living. The way he puts it, you died to the law through the body of Christ. And now you are married to Him. Now, we'll come back to that thought in just a few minutes. But then he goes on to describe this battle scene in this chapter. And, and it's not a military battle, but it's a battle for your soul. It's a spiritual battle that all of us will find ourselves in at some point or another. And maybe you're in it right now to some degree or another. But he begins by describing a battle that we can't win. And it's not a very pretty picture. In verse 7, we, we pick up there. He says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For, what I, for, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Paul says that the law has a purpose, and it really just reveals how sinful we are. Now, he says the law itself is not sin. I mean, he goes on to say in this chapter that the law is good, but it's like a mirror. It shows us uh, how we fall short of God's intention. A few years ago, this, well, this probably dates me. It's, probably, it's been off the air probably 10 years, but there was a show out there called What Not to Wear. I don't know if you've, you've ever seen it, um, but the, the, as, the, as the show goes, the hosts, Stacy and Clinton, they would point out just how how bad a dresser people are. And they would have like this this covert filming of people wearing their frumpy clothes and and then they would kind of build it up and show just like how awful their, their wardrobe selection is. And then the central point of the show, they would bring the person into this, this booth with a full-length mirror and super bright lights, and Stacey and Clinton would stand behind them and just rip them apart on how they dress, you know. And, just, and then they would ultimately give them some pointers on what to wear and how to shop, and sad to say, you know, it does not include wardrobe shopping at Bumgars, you know but they would then send the person out with a gift card and you know everything ended well and most people you know would were able to make that transition but it all really kind of boiled down to that time in the mirror booth with the bright lights to really get a look at who they were before they had the wardrobe change now p- picture this for a moment that you have a, a full length mirror at home with bright lights But it's not about your wardrobe because on that mirror, there is uh, an outline, you know, and an outline that contains your ideal physical build, your ideal shape, and your ideal weight. And every time you stand in front of that mirror, you see yourself, and then you see where you should be, and you're like, ah, you know, uh, should be a little less here, maybe a little more here, or whatever. And it just points out the difference. And it just shows the difference that's there. Well, Paul is saying that that's what the law does. And He's saying here's, here's where God wants us to be spiritually in a relationship with Him. And, and now, that, now the law just shows us where our heart is really at. But it's not a law issue, Paul says. It's not about the law. It's about our hearts. See the law comes in and just reveals where our hearts are at. Well, let's pick back up and read from verse eight. He says, "But but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment or through the law, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died." The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. In other words, shown for what it really was. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now, what does he mean by all that? He says before he had really considered the commandment about coveting, he he felt alive. He felt he was pretty good. You know, life was going well. You know, he looked at himself and saw himself as a good person. And he knew the Ten Commandments, you know. He didn't steal. he never killed. He cared for his parents. He didn't worship idols. He observed the Sabbath faithfully. But then he came to that final tenth commandment, you shall not covet, and everything changed. And that's where he said sin came alive. Why? Because that final commandment is not about external obedience. That final commandment on coveting, it's a heart issue. And coveting is wanting what someone else has and feel like, you know, you can't be satisfied until you have that thing. So with all of Paul's external conformity, and he was like on the A list when it comes to that, he knew that his heart chafed against that one commandment. You know, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther, he pointed out that this is the commandment behind all the others. And this is why, in his words, it came last on the list of ten, because it was foundational to all the other commandments. So why do we steal, for example? Because we covet what someone else has. Why do we lie? Because we want something we can't get with the truth. So we exaggerate our accomplishments and minimize our faults to gain approval. So we lie to obtain a position or an advantage that we couldn't get with the truth. And Paul saw that he was guilty at the very heart of sin, at the very root of sin. So even even Paul's zeal for his religion, and he was on fire for the Jewish law, even with that... that alone was fueled by a coveting heart because he wanted respect. He wanted status. He wanted people to look at him and say, man, he's got it all together. But what do you, what do, you do? What happens to you when you realize that everything that you had banked on, all your spiritual foundation, all of a sudden that you realize is sinful? Well, that's a spiritual train wreck. And that's where Paul is writing from today. All the wheels came off, and he says, I feel like I died. His attempts to keep the commandment just made him worse. So Paul is saying, man, the harder I tried to keep the law, you know, the harder I tried to prove how good I was and how worthy a person I was, uh, the more my coveting and insecurity and jealously flared up. My insecurity and in religion turned me into an awful person. So that's what he says when he says, by, by sin seizing the opportunity, producing me all kinds of coveting. You know, or when the commandment came, he says, sin came alive and I died, and sin produced death in me. You know, that's what he's talking about behind those words. See, Paul is describing there a battle that we can't win. And thankfully, and I'm so grateful that this chapter doesn't stop at that point, because we're not left in this state of despair. Now the next verses that we find in this chapter really, they defy simple interpretation. As I studied this chapter over the last couple of weeks, I'd read one commentator and one scholar would say this, and then I'd open up my next commentary and another scholar would say something different. And I think the difficulty is, is that Paul suddenly shifts between his pre-Christ days and his mature Christian days as an apostle. And you'll see why this is confusing in just a moment. But picking up in verse 14 of chapter 7, he says for we know that the law is spiritual but I am of the flesh sold under sin for I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate now if I do what I do not want I agree that the law with the law that it, it is good so now is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me doesn't sound much like a battle that we can win, does it? But, but here's what he's getting at. There's a new me right alongside the old me. He's saying that, yeah, there, there's the old self present, but there's a new man in Christ that can take over. But those sinful desires, they don't go away instantly. They kind of linger if we let them. So then Paul turns up the dial in, in verse 18. Where he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So when Paul talks about his flesh there, don't think about physical body. Don't think about tissue and muscle and cartilage and all that. He's not saying that our physical body is bad and the spiritual is good. Because a lot of our sinful desires have nothing to do with, you know, our physical body. Things like pride or hatred or jealousy, those are sins of the Spirit. And Paul is referring to those as sins of the flesh. So, in Paul's eyes and what he's writing here is when he's referring to flesh, he's saying that's any part of ourselves that's not absorbed in and transformed by the Holy Spirit in our lives. But both natures exist within us. There's the new me right alongside the old me. There's the the part that's saved by Christ, redeemed by the Christ, created as a new person. And then there's the other nature, the sin nature. You know, the old man, I've heard it called. And that guy doesn't want to do what's right. So there's the Dr. Jekyll and the Mr. Hyde. And as Stevenson said, it's a strange case. Well, let's read on. Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Well, confusing, right? I mean, I've been reading this chapter over and over again for the last couple weeks and I'm still like, man, it's just hard to track with. So sometimes when I encounter a passage like that in the Bible, it's It's useful to read other translations of the text because it's not always a simple, you know, Greek original language to English. And different translations can offer insight into understanding. And the message version of of the Bible is more of a paraphrase and a translation. But I looked at that this week and that that helps uh, maybe bring it into more understandable English. But the message puts these verses like this. Just listen to how uh, Eugene Peterson writes it. He said, What I do not understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. The power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, and I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes the power of, of sin is right there. I can will it but I can't do it. I decide to do good but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad and then I do it anyway. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. Parts of me covertly rebel and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I like how that puts it in simple, clear English like there's There's a good and bad going going on together. Well, there's two insights with this battle image. Two insights about this battle that we can't lose. The first is this, that we are and we have a constant struggle. We're in a constant struggle. And just simply be aware of that. Don't be blindsided in our spiritual life when you see the struggle come up. When you see temptations of sin come up. This isn't the only place in Scripture where Paul describes it. In fact, he writes other places like in Galatians 5, for example. He says that the de- desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. And those two natures are there. And in Colossians chapter 3, he talks about how we have to put off the old self and put on the new. So they are both us in, in one sense, even though Scripture tells us one is dead. We have two selves in us, working against us. In Christ, we have a new heart, a new nature. The Bible tells us we are a new creation, and we have the old right along with us. It's confusing, right? We have the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But when we cater to that old nature, when we aren't aware of what's going on, he's going to move right back in, Take over and ruin you. He's the same vengeful predator that he always has been. You know, I I heard the saying once that we need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So be aware that there is a struggle going on inside of us. Second insight is this is that know that we have the ultimate victory. And sometimes that's hard to see that, you know, when you're in the midst of a deep struggle and you feel like you're losing it, you feel like it's taken over, know that you have the victory. The battle has already been won. And that changes everything. Because we know what the true me is in Jesus Christ is not the one where sin reigns and where sin rules. You know, sometimes in our our BC days, our pre-Christ days, we might have had habits or practices that we weren't proud of, that we you know, tried to get rid of, and were just maybe a part of our old life. And when we, we became a new person in Christ, at times those old struggles can still rear their ugly head within us. And they still become a struggle. But you know that you are now in a battle that you can't lose Yeah, the struggle is still there. It's still a battle. But ultimately, the outcome has been determined. And we've won the battle. So why are these insights important? Well, one, they give us confidence in the most discouraging of times. Winston Churchill wrote this about um, World War II. Right after Pearl Harbor was bombed and attacked in December of 1941, um, President Roosevelt called Churchill. And and Roosevelt told Churchill, said, we are all in the same boat now. And Churchill later wrote in his memoir, he said that no American will think it wrong of me to proclaim that hearing the U.S. was on our side was the greatest joy to me. England would live. Britain would live. The rest of the war was simply Proper application of overwhelming force. And I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. You know, at that moment in time, nothing had changed for England. Hitler was still on the offensive, the battle was still raging, but that idea of overwhelming force transformed Churchill's attitude from helplessness to hopefulness. Well, journey, we too have an overwhelming force at our disposal. So we we go back to the beginning part of Romans 7. And here's how he puts it in verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... Now, one thing I've learned in studying Romans, whenever Paul uses the word but, it's a really big but, because it's going to change things. He's saying, now something's different. He says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which has held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Journey, our overwhelming force is the Holy Spirit in our lives. His presence in us assures us the victory for us. That means even in our darkest days, we can have encouragement. Even when it feels like we're losing the battle, we know that we, can, that we have won the war. And it might like, look like the enemy is wreaking havoc, but his defeat is assured. And the way we live now, we serve, we minister, we go through life. It's described as the new way of the Spirit. You know, as we grow in our understanding of grace, um, our struggles will diminish. And then Paul ends this chapter, he really kind of just breaks forth in in a moment of worship and praise. He comes down to verse 24 at the end. He said, "'Wretched man that I am, "'who will deliver me from this body of death? "'Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord.'" I love how he ends that chapter. He says growing in in grace on this side of the resurrection means growing in our awareness of our need for grace, of our need for a Savior. Tony Moretta in his commentary on Romans chapter 7 uh, titles this chapter of Romans, Wretched Man, Wonderful Savior. I love how he puts it. You know, when we look at our sinful side, yes, it's pretty wretched. But you know what, Journey? We have a wonderful Savior. So here's here's what we have from Romans 7. You have Paul's description of himself as a religious person, you know, who's submitted to the law of God, but his heart chafed against it. And in desperation, Paul turned uh, to God's grace in Christ because he needed that forgiveness that the law wouldn't give. He needed Christ to change his heart so, so that he'd you know, love the law in its intent and its purpose. And after following Christ, he still struggled with that sinful heart. And he knows, he knows it has to change. Which brings us back to the beginning illustration that he has about marriage in the first few verses. And his, his marriage analogy again, Picking up in verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. And accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Which I mean, that, those couple verses there just seem really random, but then he brings it home and he says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that you may bear fruit for God. You see, death releases us from the law. When we die to ourself, when we die in Christ, we are released from that mentality, that way of living, and now we're married to Christ. So now when we follow Christ, we die to that old way of thinking, we die to that, you know, works mentality, and we're stepped into a new relationship where we are married to Christ. And that frees us from that old way of thinking. So that's why Paul beautifully uses this analogy and illustration to remind us that we are wedded to Christ so that we can serve in a new way of the Spirit. And invite the praise team back up this morning. And, and, you know, chapter 7 of Romans, it can be difficult to grasp. And I've, I've been reading it over and over for the last couple of weeks, and it's still hard. But If I could boil it down to, here's the bottom line that I think we can take home today. One is that sin is real. I mean, that's what this passage reminds us of, that it's very real. And along with that, our struggle with it is real. It's just a part of, of living the Christian life, but journey, take this last one home, that our salvation is real. Our Savior is real. And we need a real relationship with that wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. So that relationship can start for you today. When you simply say, you know, I can't do this, Christ, you have to do it for me and through me. So are you ready to embrace your wonderful Savior, Jesus? Do so today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus Thank you that we can call him our wonderful Savior that takes us out of that struggle where we we stay lost, where we stay defeated, and brings us into a new way of living where the battle has already been won for us. So, Father, may we embrace Jesus today. May, May we embrace the salvation that he gives and the relationship that he desires to have with us. And we pray this in his name.